Good morning, Year 2, and welcome to this podcast on the session on clinical reasoning, how to explain. Uh, please have a look at the PowerPoint on Canvas, and I'm going to talk through the slides as we go. So looking at the learning outcomes for this session, hopefully by the end of it, you'll understand why clinical reasoning um, fits into explanation and why it's important to explain to patients uh, the consequences that has for them and for us as doctors. And we'll be looking at a bit of theory around how to explain and some of the tools that can be used to aid explanation to patients. In terms of why explanation matters, well, it does form part of the clinical reasoning cycle that we have discussed before. So if you revisit that cycle, you'll see that explaining both to patients and colleagues is important in terms of our own reasoning, informing the reasoning of our colleagues and patients, and making sure that we adequately communicate our thoughts, decisions, and plans. So when it comes to patient care, patients like to have things explained to them in a way that they understand. And I always try to sit back from this myself and think about situations where I'm dealing with professionals who are used to talking about what they talk about, uh, but it's an area that I don't understand particularly well. Uh, as an example, if I go to see a lawyer or go to see an accountant, they live in a very different world to me. I don't understand a lot of their language, uh, but if I had need of their services or advice, I do need them to put things in the way that makes sense to me. Now, there is evidence that <clears throat> Good explanation improves patient outcomes. So patients generally, and perhaps unsurprisingly, are more satisfied with consultations where they feel explanation has been done well. But equally as importantly, they are then more likely to follow medical advice. And that will include things like, you know, should I take this medication or not? Should I go to the outpatient appointment my doctor's organised? Should I follow their lifestyle advice? And thinking about why it matters to you as medical students, uh, from a selfish point of view, your ability to explain is tested uh, in the OSCEs. So some of your OSCE stations ask you to do exactly that. They ask you to explain a diagnosis or a management plan uh, to a patient and you'll be marked on your ability to put things in a way that makes understanding easier for the patient. The next slide is a slide of the clinical reasoning cycle, which you've seen before in presentations by myself and Professor Kinnear. And thinking about where explanation comes into this, if we think about the part that happens after we've gathered information from the patient. It might seem an odd thing to say, but that aspect of making sense of it is actually where we explain to ourselves 
uh, what we've heard. So we filter that information in a way that we then can get to our diagnosis or differential diagnosis. But the main part of explanation is really after we've formed our management plan and we're passing the information about the management plan onto the patient or sometimes onto colleagues. And that's where most of us think about where explanation sits and where we need to do it well. But it is worth reminding, as slide six tells us, that, you know, the explanation occurs in a, in a number of areas. So yes, to ourselves, to our patients. We quite often find ourselves having to explain to patients' families. And that might include explaining what's wrong with their loved one or what we think is going on, what's going to happen to them, what we can and can't do for them. We frequently have to explain to colleagues. So as a GP, a uh, common time I need to explain is when I'm on the telephone to a colleague trying to organise an acute admission, explaining to them why I think that admission is necessary and what I think is going on. And of course, every time I write a referral letter for a patient, I should be explaining to my colleague why I'm writing that letter. It's interesting to look at the quality of some communication between doctors. And, and I think it's fair to say that it's often not particularly good. And when you're referring to a colleague, be it over a telephone or on a letter, they really need to understand why you are making that referral, what it is that you want out of that referral. So explanation happens in all sorts of ways. And of course, as doctors, particularly in general practice, um, I find myself explaining all sorts of things to all sorts of other people, sometimes to my reception staff, to other healthcare colleagues, uh, to the police, to social workers. Uh, the list is almost endless. If we move on to thinking about how we explain, going to slide seven, you have, I'm sure, been introduced before to the Cambridge Calgary consultation model, which is one of the best known uh, consultation models, certainly in the world of general practice. Uh, and the authors of those uh, papers are there on the slide. And unsurprisingly, they come from both uh, Cambridge and Calgary in Canada. And slide eight is quite a complicated slide that, that, that attempts to describe the Cambridge-Calgary model. And you will see that there is a, a, one of the sections is that of explanation and planning. Why I like this model with regard to thinking about patient explanation is that it very much ties explanation and planning together. You can't adequately have one without the other, or you certainly can't have effective planning for a patient unless you have explained well what is going to happen and why. And you'll see that under the model here, they talk about, you know, both the correct type of information and the amount. Uh, and that's an important point because 
all of our brains have a limited capacity to take in new information. So if you, you know, it's sometimes called the Goldilocks principle, you know, not too much, not too little, just right. And we also, when we explain, we need to ensure that what we have explained has been understood. And with patients, uh, there are probably quite frequent occasions where you feel you've done a very good job of explanation, but you lift your eyes to the patient's face and you see that, in fact, you've lost them some minutes ago. Uh, at a certain point, for whatever reason, they have stopped understanding. That might be because you've not been explaining particularly well. It might be because something you have explained to the patient has um, upset them or shocked them. So uh, an example of that is, you know, uh, once you have told a patient you think they might have cancer, they probably don't listen to very much you say beyond that because they are digesting that shocking information. So there's something about achieving that understanding. And then there's something about planning for where you move on to from there. And you'll see that Cambridge Calgary used the term shared decision-making. And in order to share a decision, you both have to have sufficient understanding that that sharing is meaningful. Now, of course, doctors and patients do not have the same level of understanding, unless, of course, we are consulting with a fellow doctor or, or healthcare worker. It's not because there is a difference in intelligence or a difference in you know, ability to assimilate information. It's just that that background knowledge and understanding of context, which we take for granted as doctors, is not by and large shared by our patients. So you have to get to that point where when you are sharing decision making, sharing a plan with the patient, they are able to do that in a meaningful way. And that's surprisingly difficult to achieve, even amongst the most skilled communicators. So thinking about it as medical students and thinking about the level that you'd be expected to function at with regard to explaining, I quite liked this thing I picked up. It's quite an old edition of the British Medical Journal written by a fourth year medical student. Um, and I quite liked his simple description of how to explain, which is laid out for you on slide nine. And so this looks pretty obvious, but um, like all things that are obvious, um, Sometimes we neglect to think of the simple ingredients that we need to make things work, such as, as this student explains, making sure the patient knows who you are. And of course, as medical students, you are explaining that you're a medical student and why you're there. He then goes on to talk about checking if the patient has any prior knowledge related to what you want to explain to them. And that's a surprisingly difficult skill. But we sometimes just simply neglect to ask whether the patient has any previous experience, um, whether they have had family, for example, with a similar diagnosis, 
whether they've come to the consultation or the encounter with the doctor with any ideas about what might happen. And this is where, you know, the kind of rather tired at times concept of ideas, concerns and expectations comes in. And really, it's only once you've gone beyond that that you then start to explain, answer questions the patient might have. And of course, there needs to be sufficient time for that. Very often, doctors are working and medical students are working under pressure of time. Um, and time is sometimes neglected when it comes to explanation. So patients, you know, there's an offload of information and, you know, perhaps a cursory, is that all right? Have you understood that? And then a moving on before the patients had the opportunity to ask questions. And then I like this, the last point, which is about making sure that the information you've provided has been understood. As I said before, we sometimes presume it has when it hasn't. So sometimes asking the patient to repeat back in, in their own words what you told them can help there. Um, but mostly this is about giving small amounts of information at a time um, and checking at different points in time as to whether what you have just said is making sense of the patient. There's a term for that, which I don't particularly like, but you'll hear it, it's called chunking and checking. So you give chunks of information and you check uh, before you move on to the next bit of information. And you have to be realistic, I think, about how much you can explain. If you try to do too much, uh, then you are just going to confuse yourself and the patient. And the advice here is to avoid using unexplained medical jargon. And again, it's a terrible habit of doctors and medical students. We get used to our own language. We forget that words we use, phrases we use, have very different meanings to normal people. So thinking beyond this very simple model, which I like, uh, to a technique which has been put together by Feynman, called the Feynman Technique, unsurprisingly. Uh, Feynman's not a doctor. Uh, this, uh, this came from an arena outside of medicine. But I really like Feynman's model, not because I necessarily consciously utilised it with patients, but because when I want to go back to basics, it reminds me of what I could be doing to make my explanations better. So from slide 10 onwards, we're going to talk a bit about the Feynman technique and just think about how you might use that as medical students. So you'll see that Feynman breaks this down into four stages. And these stages, when you look at them on the slide, well, you think, well, that's that's just far too simple for me. But as we'll go on to discuss, as with much else in life, things that appear simple are actually quite complicated. So we talked about identifying the subject, teaching it to a child. Interestingly, identifying your knowledge gaps, and we'll come back to why that matters to us as doctors. And then to organize and simplify 
your thoughts and then the explanation. I'm going to try to apply this to what you might, for example, do in an OSCE or to a patient in a ward or in general practice for whom you have the task of explaining something. So if we've gone to the first area, which is identifying the subject, it might seem like very, very obvious advice to say, know what it is you're trying to explain, but we sometimes fall down around that, that we are unsure ourselves what it is that we're trying to get across. We're either confused altogether about it. We may be trying to explain several things that aren't particularly congruent and don't make sense together. Or we may be trying to explain something that we find easier for us than explaining the difficult thing that the patient actually needs to know. So as an example, if you were describing the result of a blood test, that's potentially quite a complicated bit of information to explain because you have to explain why the blood test was done, what you're looking for, what the potential you know, consequences of the result might be. And it's not too difficult for that explanation to wander so far into those other areas that you actually lose the point of the, of the blood test. And that can be a challenge for medical students, indeed for all doctors, because sometimes our own lack of knowledge and our own familiarity with what we're trying to explain may make it difficult for us to understand ourselves. And sometimes you do need, uh, before you start to explain to somebody else, to sit back and just be clear. And once you've decided what it is you're going to explain, then you just stick to that point and make sure you've got sufficient information. So there's information which is kind of just stuff you collect and then knowledge which is what exists in you that you can go and explain. So, for example, if I, you were in my general practice and I said, um, you know, this patient's uh, PSA blood test has come in, uh, please go and explain the result to them. The likelihood is that you would have to do quite a bit of information and knowledge gathering yourself. You may or may not understand much about PSA testing, but you would certainly want to go and check the result of the blood test. You would want to look up present advice with regard to PSA thresholds, uh, and you would look up uh, advice around, you know, referral for raised PSA, repeat blood tests, whatever else. There's quite a bit you need to know before you should even start attempting to explain that to a patient. And of course, sometimes as a medical student, you're thrown right in at a deep end, having to try to explain something that um, either the subject is difficult for you to identify or difficult for you to understand. We move on to slide 12. This is Feynman's stage where he talks about teaching it to a child. Now, my instant response to that is to dislike it because almost by definition, it looks patronizing or it is patronizing. But Feynman doesn't mean it in the sense of, you know, teach it to an idiot. What he's saying here is that, you know, children are receptive, they are able to take information in. 
but they are not in possession of sophisticated medical language or medical understanding. And this hopefully helps us to remember to keep our language clear, avoid jargon, and as I said before, not throw too much information. Think yourself in circumstances, you know, I said before, you know, when you're visiting the, you know, well, hopefully too many of you aren't, many of you aren't visiting accountants or solicitors, but, you know, some situation where you have not very much understanding, um, we all reach a point where the, the noise coming at us just becomes white noise. We've stopped understanding, we've stopped listening, but the person who's explaining to us is still talking and actually we just wish they would stop. Area three is about knowledge gaps and, and interestingly, the first bit of advice given is to be aware of the gap that exists between you and the other person and in our context between you as a medical student and the patient. Sometimes as a student you might feel more aware of your lack of knowledge than possession of it but actually what you fail to realize is that you have a very significant knowledge gap between you and most of the patients you're going to see. Not always. Sometimes you'll come across expert patients who know much more about their subject area than you. So the knowledge gap doesn't always work in that in the direction that you expect it to. But mostly as medical students, as doctors, we have more knowledge than uh, our patients do about their condition. But also it's important to be aware about the limits of your own knowledge. And as a pretty experienced GP, there are very few surgeries I get through where my own knowledge isn't tested well beyond the point uh, that it breaks. And that might be because it's a knowledge gap that I've always had. It might be that knowledge I used to have uh, has atrophied and disappeared. Or it might be because I'm encountering a new clinical or other type of problem that is rare. And so I have very little experience or knowledge of it. And again, not infrequently, you have to be prepared to admit a knowledge gap to a patient and say, I need to find more out about this myself. And we need to come back to this. You know, the amount of medical knowledge that is out there is beyond any human brain. Once we've got to the point where we are going to explain, or where we are explaining, as slide 14 tells us, we, we need to organise and simplify. And this is often where it goes wrong that we either don't organize our own thoughts and think about how we're going to simplify our explanations. Sometimes by this point, we have confused ourselves to the degree that all we do is continue uh, to throw more information that the patient is, is already not understanding. And the last point is absolutely crucial here. And whatever else you take out of today, take this one away. 
as a medical student, as a doctor, with something to explain as a, to a patient, what's the most important message I need my patient to take away? Because if they accurately take away something less important, that's not really going to be that great for them. So if the message is, I think you might have cancer and I'm going to refer you, Uh, accordingly, that's the message the patient needs to leave the room with. It might not be a comfortable one. It might not be one I want to explain. It might be one I wish I wasn't having to explain. But that's what the patient needs to know. If the most important message is, if you don't take these tablets, you will come to harm, that message needs to get across. And again, I've said before about too much information giving. Sometimes we can dilute an important message because we just surround it in lots of unnecessary detail to the detriment of the patient properly understanding the thing you most want to explain. I mentioned before about, you know, breaking bad news. And what I see good colleagues do is they often stop at that point and will say that's an awful lot for you to take in. Let's meet again so I can answer your questions. A bit of an advantage in general practice where we can call the patient back might be more difficult uh, in a secondary care setting, but sometimes you just need to know when to stop. And again, I'm repeating myself because it's the most important message I want you to get out of this session make sure that first of all before you started to explain you have decided for yourself what's the most important message for the patient to take away and then you ensure that that's been done because if you fail in that task then you have failed badly which of course is not something we want to do so if we go on now to slide 15, you'll see a mention here again of patient-centered communication, which the Cambridge Calgary model is very much rooted in. And patient-centered communication is pretty much what it says it is on the tin. We are acknowledging explicitly that what we communicate and how we communicate needs to be centered on the needs of the patient, uh, not on our own needs or anybody else's needs. Now, of course, as doctors, usually the patient's needs and ours are entirely complementary. There's quite a bit of scepticism, I think it's fair to say, around patient-centered communication, and, and that's because I think it's poorly understood. This is not just about abandoning our medical knowledge and our, you know, ability uh, towards just being nice to patients or, you know, making them feel pleased that they came to see you. Actually, there's a lot of evidence that achieving this is really important in terms of getting the outcomes we want for our patients. And Epstein and Street talk about some of the benefits of, of this mode of approaching patients. And you, you'll see there that they talk about the exchange of information as an important benefit of keeping the patient in the middle of what you're doing. 
Now, one way that you can achieve that in consultations is that if you've taken trouble to find out a bit about the patient, what they're worried about, what they're concerned about, what thoughts they have about their own care, you can often use that information when you are suggesting a management plan to them, even if you're not necessarily going in the direction that the patient has indicated either they want to go in or they're expecting to go in. So if a patient, for example, has told me that they are, you know, expecting to be referred to hospital, but I feel that I can manage them equally well in primary care, I can still use that information in my explanation. And I'll commonly say things such as, well, you told me you thought I might need to refer you to hospital for this. Let me explain what I think we can do for you here without my having to send you elsewhere. And you'll see that Epstein and Street tie all of this into making decisions, and that can be around managing uncertainty. <clears throat> and it can be around handing responsibility to patients for their own care. Patients own their illnesses and we sometimes tend to think as doctors that it's our job to take their illnesses on board and manage them as doctors. But ultimately, patients do need to manage their conditions. And this is particularly true of patients with long-term conditions such as diabetes, where they really do need to take a lot of responsibility for managing their own care. And again, slide 16 and 17 just remind you, and I explained this before, of where explanation fits in the clinical cycle. It really is crucial. It happens at several points in the cycle. And unless it's done well, then things fall apart. I like greenhouses. Um, justification for shared decision-making. This, this comes out of the book that I mentioned to you uh, in our last clinical re, um, reasoning session, uh, Greenhouse's book, How to Read a Paper. And she provides a whole chapter on how to share decisions with, uh, with patients. And you'll see that she emphasizes the importance of accurate and understandable information to patients. Something I said earlier in this talk, but it's worth emphasizing that if I explain something inaccurately or in a way that the patient doesn't understand, that's actually medically quite dangerous because they leave my consulting room with the wrong ideas about what's wrong with them or the wrong ideas about what's going to happen to them or what they need to do. And at best, they may not benefit from interventions that might help them. And at worst, uh, that can result in real harm because they go away and mistakenly think they're doing what you've advised them to do.
I'm just going to briefly talk about decision-making aids. So these are aids that doctors use uh, and use with their patients to help patients make decisions about their care. It's a way of explaining to a patient what something means. And Edwards and all talked about decision-making aids. And really their philosophy is that this is a move away from the paternalistic, you know, doctor knows best, I'm going to tell you what to do, to a, a model where what our responsibility is, is to lay out the facts for patient in a way they understand and to use words and sometimes data or graphs or figures that make sense to the patient and help them understand what's going on so they can make decisions. And some of you will have seen, if we go on to slide 20, examples of, of that where, you know, trying to explain, for example, to a patient whether they should or shouldn't take a statin is actually really complicated. And as doctors, we interestingly often overestimate the benefit of uh, taking primary or secondary prevention medication because that's what we are. We're doctors, you know, we, we work on a you know, population basis. But what an individual patient wants to know is what's what's the likelihood I'm going to benefit from taking a statin? So if you look at the figures or, or you look at the um, diagrams on page 20, and this is, this is for a diabetic with a 20% risk of coronary heart disease, so somebody in a high-risk, you know, group, what that picture is telling them is that, you know, actually most of the people on that page do not benefit from taking a statin. People like you, not the population as a whole, but if we take 100 people like you, it's actually the ones in yellow who've benefited from taking a statin. The rest of them that have either had their heart attack anyway or, you know, they were never going to come to harm in the first place. So these types of aids can be useful to people. And then final slide is, is, is something, again, this was something I became aware of in, in researching this talk now around what are called option grids for decision-making aids. And this is an example of an option grid for atrial fibrillation. And an option grid is, again, where in language that a non-doctor is likely to understand, words are used to describe what the benefits and risks are of, of adopting a course of action, be it, so this one here is for, you know, anticoagulation in patients with atrial fibrillation. And I've seen similar option grids. I talked about PSA testing before, and, and there's, there's one for PSA testing. Um, and again, an example of where doctors are able to use external aids or refer patients to external aids to help them make their decisions. And this is particularly important, I would argue, at a time where a lot of information is available to patients and patients might struggle to know what information to believe and which information is unreliable. So we've more or less got to the end of the talk. I mean, I would say in summary, the explanation 
It's identified as an important part of clinical reasoning that we need to explain to ourselves, to our patients and to others. And as well as explaining, we need to be understood. So that whenever you explain, you need to take care to ensure that you are understood whilst you're explaining. And you should always check understanding once you think your explanation is complete. We're done. Good to talk to you. Take care. Bye now.